Hi, Don. Hi, Tanya. Are you ready to talk about Jen Hatmaker's work? I am. Yes. So we chose one of her older books because it represents such a big turning point in her journey. It's called Interrupted, and she has more current books. I, I was seeing that she is about to release Fierce, Free, and Full of Fire. It's her new book. Oh. So I'm looking forward to that. that she says good. she it's the book she wishes she had five years ago. When she started out doing a lot more, like stepping out really bravely, stepping into the line of fire. Yes. And receiving a lot of criticism, which she knew she was stepping into that when she started speaking up for the LGBTQ community. And so she has had an interesting five years. And this book predates that. When is this published? Is it? It's a while ago. 2014. What was it that drew us to this book in the beginning? I think my first exposure to Jen Hatmaker was her blog that a friend of ours had shared. Do you remember that hysterical blog post about her son, like one of the days at school that he had to dress up as like a historical figure and she's putting like, you know, baseball pants on him to be, I don't know, Abraham Lincoln, somebody, you know, (laughs) and, you know, sitting at a field and reading that and laughing out loud, like hysterically laughing because it was just so funny, the plight of motherhood and that kind of thing and that was my first exposure to her anyway um she kind of like stuck as somebody that was interesting to me I also got a blog that a friend sent Mm -hmm. and it was one about school toward the end of the year and the folders and the backpack yes and it was hilarious yeah laugh out loud tears running down my face as a mom you know right just hilarious well the first book I read was for the love okay because that was the one that had just come out Okay. When And so I read that, and that one is very funny. I don't remember sort of from a faith theological perspective uh-huh. what it's about, right? except that I really enjoyed it. And then this one, you had read already. I think yes. you and Sandy had already read this, and I went back to this one. Oh, okay. And this one has a lot more just meat on the bone, I guess, in terms uh-huh. of saying something really, especially at the time it was written, Yes. Really different. Yeah, really different. Some circles. Yeah. Basically calling the church out on being absent in poverty in our own country. Right. 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 So and and their shift from being part of a big evangelical denomination. uh, Attractional model church to starting their own church in a missional style. Missional meaning going into the community starting a church there, investing in the people right there in a way that is meaningful to them. Right. Yep. And and just getting in on the ground level, just trying to start doing something as, and she is so funny, just describing uh-huh. their first foray into what does it mean to help the poor? And, right. you know, it's just really funny, but they just started. We have, we live in this stratified culture where we don't have a lot of connections with people that are different than us. And so she just, they just start trying. The book begins like as a really personal event for her or a series of events, you know, this period of time where she really felt God calling to her to change, you know, to see things differently. And then I felt in reading it again that then it shifts to sort of this admonishment, this urging to the church as a whole to be a different kind of church at the end of the book. And so it goes kind of like from an individual perspective to a corporate perspective and so where would you want to start well one thing I wanted to ask you just I thought about you a lot because you were part of a church plant I don't know if would you call it a split a plant a startup I don't know it all depends on who you're talking to (laughs) but um 
Split, of course, is the negative. Plant is the positive. Yeah, so how does her story compare with your experience in terms of she has this list, they ask themselves all these questions about the kind of church they want to be. Did you guys go through any process like that? Oh, absolutely, yes. We were very clear about wanting to be a church that was active, that was calling people to actually do things, even to the point of being willing to make people uncomfortable. So going back to, you know, we all came from an attractional model church. Starting a church where you are not looking to own a building helps the possibility that you won't have to rely on attracting people to come to your church to keep your church going. And so it gives you some freedoms to make it somewhat uncomfortable for people um, in terms of conversations they're willing to have, you know, in the moment, like at the gathering, um, will you sit with someone that you don't know well and actually have a vulnerable conversation with them about something that maybe we don't talk about all week long because we're busy and, you know, just especially doing... in New England. Yes. So that was part of this experiment. It's a way to build community. We talked about what kinds of things will we take on? Will we care about enough to do something? And what was the story behind Four Echoes? And then Four Echoes is the shop. It's a vintage shop that the church formed a a 501c3, so they formed an umbrella organization called Town Square Partners. And that group purchased an existing business and then converted it to a nonprofit uh, to create the funding stream for some of these like outreach kinds of And you're helping with that project in Liberia? Yes. Yes. I was really excited to hear about that. Yep. Uh, Richard and Hala. Richard and Hala, they're starting a school and a training center in their home country. Yes. And so you guys were able to cut them a check. Yes. That's exciting. It, It is. And they came and spoke. You know, to be able to do things locally as well as globally and be, you know, like a small startup organization is really exciting. There's a lot of, you know, big ideas being talked about and small steps toward them. So I guess that's a way to put it. So I don't know. Does that answer your question? Yeah. I was really intrigued because when I looked back, of course, she is a big fan of Richard Rohr, which is a book we read a couple months ago. And she, not only does she quote him, but she also takes the whole ladder analogy about going to a lower place to another level. I thought I'd read this just because we have already a connection. This whole book is a beautiful example of her really taking that on. Absolutely. And her, her husband as well. So this is on page 72. When Jesus told us to take the lowest place, Luke 14.10, it was more than a strategy for social justice. It was even more than wooing us to the bottom for communion, since that is where he is always found. The path of descent becomes our own liberation. We are freed from the exhausting stance of defense. We are no longer compelled to be right and are thus relieved from the burden of maintaining some reputation. We are released from the idols of greed, control, and status. The pressure to protect the house of cards is alleviated when we take the lowest place. Hmm. I love the connection that she's also been influenced by him. Yes. It reminds me of something I've been, it's so obvious, but it's been something that's really been on my mind. Just listening to music, 
And even just the way we talk in church, a lot of times you hear the language of bring your burdens, bring your trials, bring your failures to the cross. Mm -hmm. But we hardly ever want to disassociate our identity from our successes. So you don't hear people saying as much, even though it's just as clear in the Bible, you don't hear it as much like bring that success to the cross and leave it there. Uh (laughs) You don't hear bring your healthy marriage to the cross and give it to Jesus. He will take that burden. That is not your identity. You know, we want to keep those in just the American mindset. We want to hold on to our successes, even in the church. Well, I think we want to attribute them to Christ. Right, right. And I don't necessarily mean that in a good way, in in an appropriate way. I mean, we want to take his name and label that him. Right. Solely, like you're saying, without the other side of. Right. And that our identity isn't in those things. Right be it the failures or having something to protect, that's the language that made me think of it. Yeah. When you have something to protect in your reputation, in your status, in your successes, uh, we want to hook that up with our identity. Right. And the true, the, how, who do you know? I don't know anyone that truly has their identity in Christ when it comes to that. <laughs> right? That doesn't attribute their successes to their name. Right. And then, I mean, it is very healthy to say in every victory, it's Christ in me, right? True, but I think that things that would be labeled victories by him are different than what would be labeled victories by us. It's an interesting thought. It makes me think of Bono, who I wanted to talk about during this conversation anyway. So Bono spoke at the Global Leadership Summit in 2006. Do you remember that? Long time ago. Yeah. So he was asked, and he is a very private Christ follower. Mm-hmm. And he is very careful because, as he says, he has no problem with Christ. It's the Christians he can't stand. Sure. Right? Uh-huh. So he was invited to do an interview, and he really called out the church on being absent in HIV and extreme poverty in Africa in particular. And it was so brilliantly done. And he said, you know, I have this platform. He epitomized that. Like, he has this fame, this platform He's admired and adored by millions. And you can find it on YouTube in bits and pieces. Uh I couldn't find the whole thing, and I'm not sure if it's protected. But you can find snippets of it if you you Google Bono GLS 2006. But he... He said, this is my platform, so I'm going to speak for people that have no voice. And that, that is why he, that is how he's using his fame. Mm-hmm. He talks about Matthew 25. It is the only time in all of the Gospels where he talks about who's in and who's out. And he describes it as the goat and the sheep. Mm-hmm. Do you want to read that part? Sure, I can read that. We do have the paired scripture reading for this is the behemoth task of reading all of the Gospel of Matthew, but we wanted to do one entire Gospel at least for the for each season. So you can also hear it on that, but it's toward the end. But we wanted right. to read part of it now, too. Okay, so this is starting at verse 31. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit upon his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered in his presence, in his presence and he will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger 
and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then these righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink or a stranger and show you hospitality or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth. When you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. And then the king will turn to those on the left and say, Away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his demons. For I was hungry, and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty, and you didn't give me a drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't invite me into your home. I was naked, and you didn't give me clothing. I was sick and in prison, and you didn't visit me. And they will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick? or in prison and not help you? And he will answer, I'll tell you the truth. When you refuse to help the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were refusing to help me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. So that is the only time that Jesus talks about judgment. Himself. And it's all about it's all about helping those in need. Not, and it's not a metaphor. That's one thing Jen, yes, Jen Hatmaker does say, say most hilariously. Because right. in the beginning, when she's first feeling convicted, she says, but I've been doing all these Bible studies. I've been feeding the sheep. Right. And then she had the aha moment that he means literally feed, feed those in need. Yes. And it's really funny the way she writes it, yeah. which is just a pleasure to enter into some of this stuff yes. with a little bit of humility and humor. Right. But Bono also set my husband off on quite an adventure. Right? <laughs> That's right. So he went with some friends to just kind of see what they could do in Haiti. Like, we don't know. Right. But through the years of continuing on that journey, he's now deeply involved there. All Talk kinds about of that a little bit. Well, it's, as he says, one thing he talked about when people ask him to speak is the most important lesson for him and for other believers in American believers mm -hmm. is that you have to get yourself out of your comfort zone because until you do that, you can never rely on God. And so that it wasn't until he was in Haiti trying to help in these really difficult circumstances, it was really humbling that you feel a reliance on God mm -hmm. and that you see him moving. Mm-hmm. After they had been there a couple of times and just all these miracles were happening and, you know, like the right person they wanted to meet with, they would, they would just be there in the hotel lobby. Like these All these miracles. And this Haitian man, this older Haitian gentleman said to him, Scott, in Haiti, miracles are common because life is too hard to depend on yourself. And he's sort of taken that with him. And so he, he urges people, like, whatever it is in your context, get out of your comfort zone. So right. if that means making some kind of awkward gesture toward helping a homeless person and you feel really uncomfortable and you don't know if you're doing more harm than good, just oh. do it. Just start doing yeah. something. Yeah. And that discomfort will force you to be reliant on God in a way that as Americans we miss out on. Absolutely. So he's helped, he helped start this organization called Teachers Training Teachers that provides teacher training for Haitian teachers. He has done some business development because one of his ideas as a business person himself is if he could help existing businesses there become more profitable, mm -hmm. that would be pouring resources into those communities. Mm -hmm. He is good friends with a man that produces Haitian vetiver, the essential oil. 
could he help him become more profitable? And this man already, just through his business, provides so much opportunity in his community for Mm -hmm. jobs, for people to be able to invest in their kids and their health care. And now he's he's doing a solar project currently where he is helping. He did it at a school and at some private homes. And now he's doing it at a hospital, setting up solar power because with change recently in politics, they can no longer get fuel as inexpensively as before. And there was a lot of political unrest in the fall so that even the resources that were in Port-au-Prince weren't getting out to the outlying communities. So hospitals that rely on a generator and diesel to run electricity were dark all over the country. And so the hospital in the community where he works in Lakai, which is in the south part of Haiti, doctors were going around using their cell phone flashlights to even be able to see patients. And so they have they're in the process of they have already done one section of solar powered a solar array that powers the maternity ward and now they have the pediatric wing is powered too so anyway so right now thing that's the, the thing next. he's doing right now yeah um, but he's also worked in agriculture there like just uh doing some well project learning from haitian farmers how they do it and trying to support them in that, as opposed to bringing down our technology and our, some of that is good, sure. right? But mostly working with the, within what they already do very well. They're very resilient. So for us to come in and go, oh, well, we know how to do agriculture. Let us show you how. <laughs> no, you know, yeah. learn from them and then help them do what they want to do. Which takes an amazing amount of, is a result of the amount of time spent. Like if you go back to 2006, I think probably some of those conversations in the early times, people from a culture that are in need and see Americans as a resource to meet some of those needs, I think sometimes are not able to be completely honest about things. And so may go along with you say, I'll bring all of this. And so they say, okay. And they may already know it's not going to work. But to turn you away or to correct you is just not going to happen in that cultural setting. I have a story about that, which is <laughs> right after the... So Scott was... They started going down there in 2007. Mm-hmm. And they started doing leadership development because they had one Haitian friend that is living in this area that was sort of spearheading the project and said, what Haiti needs... There are enough people going and painting orphanages. Please do not do that kind yeah. of thing. He's like... Mm-hmm. What they need is leadership development. Mm -hmm. So they went in doing that initially, and they actually brought the Global Leadership Summit to Haiti. But they got connected with one of these NGOs that had a compound, Mm -hmm. you know, with a school, a church, and a hospital, and sort of like a co-op agriculture kind of thing. And those are great. There's nothing wrong with those. But Mm -hmm. right after the earthquake, all of a sudden, people are pouring in money without having a relationship Sure. Right. So it was a time where organizations were flooded with money and they didn't want to turn it away. There, so there was a group from the United States that wanted to put in a state of the art kitchen in this compound. Mm-hmm. And the vision was to train people to cook and they, they'll, they'll have jobs. So they put in this state of the art kitchen. That and it was no just one of those things where they're like, <laughs> when when Scott saw it late, a little bit later, because he wasn't part of that group, he wasn't part of that project at all, uh-huh. but he went down to visit and saw that and just went, oh, this is just such a waste of money. But how could they say no? And tell me This how, group because... wants to come in and spend all this money putting in a state-of-the-art kitchen. So to somebody who hasn't been there or seen that, I'm hearing you say it, and, and I'm guessing at what some of the issues are, but tell me 
when Scott saw that, what are the issues that could have been like the state of the art kitchen doesn't do what? Like, what is it that it makes it? Well, if you have no power. Okay. So that so, is one Or thing. power one is extremely unreliable. If everybody is used to cooking with out, coals out of doors. <laughs> right. And have no means to put a kitchen right. into their home. <laughs> it, it just had no forethought or afterthought. It, uh-huh. it was dumped there without any kind of relationship about what these people in this place want mm-hmm. and need, mm-hmm. nor anything after the fact, which is we'll have to supply them with energy and food to cook in the kitchen right. and training. And then how do you then connect them to jobs if that was the vision? And there's so many stories like that sure. in, all through all through. The developing world. I'm not sure if that's the PC thing. There's so many things you're not supposed to say. Right. I know. And this is one of those books that brings up a lot of that stuff where, like, I felt it even preparing for talking about this today. Like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to say things that are wrong or that are terrible or that will offend people or that will hurt people's feelings because I don't know how to talk about this with wisdom yet. It's still very uh, much you know, working in my life and shifting things for me. And, and it takes a long time, you know, when you describe Scott's story in Haiti, that's 14 years of, you know, being there and communicating with people and finding leads and losing leads and, you know, things turning, things shifting and political things happening and acts of God happening, earthquakes and hurricanes and, you know, on and on. And I was thinking about that quote about we mentioned it in one of the earlier episodes about hosting the table as opposed to being at the table. And what a challenge that is. It's hard to navigate that when you actually come from a position of power and everyone else at that table knows that you have a position of power just by the color of your skin in that situation. And how do you navigate that? It's very tricky, very hard. And I feel like I hear that now all over the place, you know, politically. And how do we, Krista Tippett on Being was interviewing someone and she said, I ask myself this question a lot. How do I talk to you in a way that lets us stay in the car together? And that piece of being at the table and being able to really hear another person and giving them confidence to know that they can say it. You know, that that part about protecting. There's a, a feeling inside of me about church in general, not being a place where it's safe to do that and where there is too much to protect. There is too much that can go wrong. There's too, there's too many unsuccess stories that we don't want to talk about, you know? I guess I'd say that relationship is everything Yes. in that and that if you are in the car, at least you're having, at it's, least you're in relationship. Yes. But I tell you that sending a check from your community to a community where you know nobody is not, it doesn't, I mean, we should still send our checks. Right. Right. But it's not enough. Yeah. It's not enough to send a check and not have any relationship. Yeah. That even though that's awkward and saying the wrong thing and are you going to get kicked out of the car you or are you going to offend somewhere. somebody, at least you're in relationship. Yeah. And that's the only way to begin. Yeah. That's another thing that Scott has learned is that being in the room. Yes. As fraught as that can be at times and you have to and live confusing yeah and overwhelming and uncertain of really like what your instincts are what your gut would tell you is well this is what we should do having to hold back on that and you know kind of like put the brakes on that and say well wait a minute 
hear it out, you know, like give it some time because this is a different place. These are different people. This isn't me. This is the other. Right. That I want, you know, to become an us. And going in knowing that you have needs too. And in a sense, that's why you're there. Right. You know, I, I mean, we're wired that way to need each other. You know, right. And those connections in between, like what Nadia Boltzweber said, you know, it's it's not the person who is who has the need, you know, that is Christ. And it's not the person who can meet the need that is Christ. It's in the act of the meeting of the need, that exchange of vulnerability on both sides in very different ways where Christ is evident. That's amazing and so subtle. And I think that's what this book describes is sort of that awakening to that, that my tribe, you know, the way that it worked for me, it doesn't work for everyone. And I don't even see them. I'm so wrapped up in this. Like that's part of what she says in the beginning. That's a tough road to be willing to go down when it all works for you until it doesn't. Right. You know, right. she did have that experience. Like, why am I so dry? I think was the word she used, you know, is, is this really all there is? And I do think we have kind of a lot of that happening um, for people that are, have been in church all their life and for whom the, the wheels need to keep turning a certain way. But there is sort of a dryness underneath it or a, a feeling of like, is this really, you know, and I can or, relate to that. Or the opposite, which is this is right. And why doesn't anyone get it? And these other people, I if they if only would. I wonder if it stems from that, though. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? If that's yeah. what's underneath that, that idea, that feeling of uncertainty that says, you know, like, what's missing? Well, let, we need to double down. You know, we need. Right. And, and then we'll feel it again. It will happen again. And She, ta- she has this chapter uh, in the city for the city where she starts it talking about the small group dilemma. Okay. You know? What page is that? Uh, it's page 231. And I think she addresses exactly what you're talking about and that she brings up okay. the very popular small group or community <laughs> group or cell groups. They have different names. Especially if you're at a big church, it can be really helpful to have a smaller group that meets. And sometimes it's more fellowship. Sometimes it's more a Bible study and that sort of thing. And this is certainly, I've had this experience that it can be so insular that yeah. you feel it feels clicky. Yes. So how do you, how do you navigate that? And she, she says that their small group, I thought this was really great. This is funny, and this might rub a few people the wrong way, but <laughs> on 232, she says, How many discussions can we have about Sunday's sermon? How long can we sacrifice a night a week for a basic repeat of the last gathering? It runs out because we weren't created to serve ourselves. We're not wired to take the role of master but slave. Being blessed people eventually leaves us empty. Mm-hmm. And despite a church system designed to meet our needs, these words come out of our mouths. I'm not being fed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then she goes on. Uh, the last thing we need is another sermon. I couldn't count the sermons I've heard, yet almost none of my transformational moments took place in a church pew. Yeah. But then she skips down and she sort of has a solution, which is why I wanted to read this, which is that her group... They, they started a new format where they meet two weeks a month for traditional fellowship and discussion. It's deliberately inclusive and the front door into our church family. So that means it's not like, this is our five couple small group and it's closed sure. and no one can come, which is I a wonder broken. how they do that, though. 
I don't know. I'll let you finish it. Yeah, I don't know. And then she says they meet. So the two weeks are traditional. One meet week for a mission work with a nonprofit, so like a volunteer night. Mm-hmm. And then the, they spend the last week apart to intentionally live on mission, inviting neighbors over for dinner, going out for coffee with a coworker, hosting a poker night, etc. Mm-hmm. And so I thought that was a really nice sort of step toward how can we do, how can yeah. we keep this? Because the small groups are, are great. They, they, it is where people get cared for and can build a longer, deeper relationships than just on a Sunday morning. Mm-hmm. But how do you how do you keep it from being clicky and insular and turned away from the world as opposed to turned toward the world? Right. So I just thought that was a good model, mm-hmm. I guess, to use as a springboard for our own small group dilemmas. Uh-huh. Yeah. I don't know what to do with small There's a part of me that it's been transformational for me when I don't call it a small group. <laughs> <laughs> I I um she talked in the middle of the book about um this experience that she had after they were still at their original church which I don't know where they came from before they started um Austin New Church and they went to hear Shane Claiborne speak it was Easter Sunday night or something like that mm-hmm and they had had this, you know, as she would, you know, she was describing it like, you know, fantastic Easter service, you know, like the music, awesome, the, you know, like all the stuff, right, for Easter. And then they went to this little like rented space with a very unproduced type of um, gathering and Shane Claiborne spoke and one of the, him talking, one of the things he was talking about led to an altar call where you would leave your shoes, you know, like you would actually help someone that night, you know, in that spot. So he asked, you know, like, would you be willing to come up here and leave your shoes? I think and your socks. socks. <laughs> yes, which I'm like, oh my gosh, all these dirty socks. Like, okay. And then she and her husband were laughing because they had just, you know, changed from church, but they had put on their like brand new cowboy boots or something that they had gotten each other for Christmas, which were evidently, you know, like a splurge and, you know, not what they even normally would wear. And, and here they were wearing like their most favorite best shoes. And I love that she says that she hesitated, like that it took her a second to decide, will I actually give up these boots? You know, like where she did sort of like that thing with Jesus, like, come on, do you really need my boots? Like, can I just run out and buy a pair of Nikes? Those would be much more useful to the homeless person. Right. Like, whoever gets and these she, boots. She makes a joke that they're going to sell them, obviously, sell them. because right. they're worth so much money. And Right. Yes. And they're impractical. Like, right. You know. And then she says, you know, like, how would I even live with myself if I don't give this a try? Like, this is why I'm here, you know? So, like, go all in. Don't make it about the boots, you know? And and so they do, they go up and, you know, she describes that in Texas that year, it was like freezing cold on Easter, which it never is. So like they were going, walking out barefoot in 30 degrees, you know, kind of thing to their car. But the feeling of walking out of church barefoot in 30 degrees to your car left such an imprint on, on them that they used that phrase to talk about the kind of church that they wanted to create. And they called it a barefooted church, like the willingness to humble yourself and to be, I think, even in that moment, spontaneous, like to spontaneously listen, even though like there's a part of me that's been around church long enough. And, and this is not 
meant to be a criticism of Shane Claiborne. I don't know him. I don't, you know, like, and yet I've been in services where there's this sort of kooky altar call that you lay it all out there type of thing that's meant to really like, you know, tug on your heart. And it, I want to believe it's genuine, you know, and as they describe it, it, it's genuine. And yet there's this (laughs) cynical part of me inside that's like, is that really helping? And is this just like a stunt that makes people feel like they're doing something? Yes. Um, It's not relationship. Right. What we were just talking about, it isn't. It It does not fall in that category. And so I don't want to taint something that is pure by bringing that question up. But that is the question that comes up for me in those stories. I can talk about Haiti again in that sense because, you know, there's the (laughs) – the endless missions groups that want to go with the matching t-shirts to mm-hmm. you name it any community that they perceive is is in need and those are good things to do because of the experience for those people right it is really helpful for a group of affluent 18 year olds to go yeah. down to Haiti and work in a school because of the experience it gives them but let's not get that confused with it actually being helpful for the people of Haiti right okay come but know that it's an experience for you to open your eyes and get in touch with a different part of the world. It is not, you know, you're not, no, that, I, it's both. Because at this point, like he brought, there's a wonderful guy at our church uh, that is a HVAC guy uh-huh. that knows all about AC and all of this uh-huh. stuff. So Scott has learned all about solar panels, but he is not a professional HVAC guy. Mm-hmm. So to have Chris come down with him was a huge boon to the project. So there's that. I don't want to devalue that. Sure. Anyway, but it is still valuable to go. Right. And it's still, even if you go and you you build a building or you paint a building and, okay, so there's a Haitian carpenter or painter that easily could have done that. That's true. It's still worth it for the experience, but just know that it's your experience to open Uh your eyes to a different part of the world. Right. 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 Um, So I think that's in the same camp. They gave their boots. And it led them on a journey. Right. Yes. So it humbled them. It gave them an experience. You know, maybe it did. It, I'm sure the shoes were put to good use and all sure. of that, even though it wasn't yeah, relational. Mm-hmm. But it was more about the people giving up their shoes and the experience it gave them, right. which is a good and beautiful thing. Right. Yeah. I wanted to say one other thing Go about ahead. this. When I started about the small group, you had talked about sort of a little bit of the apathy of or the feeling of dryness. Yes. In, the, in her talk about the small groups getting engaged in relationally helping or get, partnering with nonprofits in their area or inviting the neighbors over, she's talking about it as living on mission, mm-hmm. some of the same, having the mission focus as opposed to the attraction focus. Right. So she says on page 233, at the risk of oversimplifying it, I've seen missional living cure apathy better than any sermon, promote healing quicker than counseling, deepen discipleship more than Bible studies, and create converts more effectively than events. Mm-hmm. And so she's talking about that in the context of the small groups, sort of training people or, or equipping people to go out and do this. Yeah. As part of our group of 12 people, we're going to meet and do the traditional thing, but then the other two weeks, we're sent. And giving people the tools to get onto that ramp. I don't know. And so the idea that that cures apathy just resonated with me. Sure. And I do think there are churches doing that effectively. But I guess in terms of like a small group where where you're actually impacting, where your church is different because of it. I find sometimes as an introvert that I feel that I have too many people in my life. 
That sounds terrible, <laughs> right? Like, how can, how can you be a Christ follower and say you have too many people in your life? Like, you need to cut some of them off. Um, <laughs> but I feel that tension a lot. And so I have this sort of issue of the church gathering being this container that I don't know if it really contains it anymore, right? Like, I don't know if it's a valuable container anymore, that Sunday morning structure. So I'm wrestling with that deeply. If it isn't that, what is it? And then I immediately turn to small group and have had like really transformational experiences in our group. And yet when the dynamics change of those few individuals, we lose the person hosting renovates their house and we're displaced for, you know, a period of months. Someone moves and suddenly the group that was so bonded has to feel those bonds stretch and it changes things. And so then I think, well, you do need a structure because those small groups can be affected by circumstances that dissolve them or weaken them. I don't know if I'm making any sense now. No. Because it's I, a jumble for it's me. A little it really bit of, is. Well, and I, I think, you know, I've thought about this a lot. We had for many years a really powerful experience in a small group Mm -hmm. and we started in the more traditional sense and then we ended a little bit like what she's saying which maybe that's why I like what she's saying where we did we did purposefully try to do some missional things Mm -hmm. and one of the things we did as a group was we sponsored a refugee family Mm -hmm. from uh, Burundi Mm -hmm. and it was uh, two parents and actually eight children and so it ended up being just two couples that really stuck with it but that was transformational for us. But sure. we had to start at the beginning. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And same thing, I think of church that way, that if there is no church, then you don't have a growing place for people that are just beginning the journey. Right. When it breaks down is when people aren't growing in their discipleship and then moving on, not being sent out. Not being right? taken out of their comfort zone. Right. There's a developmental yeah. thing that church does. There's a caring for the people in that family but then there is a sent out part and if you miss that step it breaks down that if I could sit with Jen Hatmaker I would want to ask her some questions about because I suspect that she's moved further along since she wrote this oh yeah in terms of why do we care really what does that get to and what Jen pushes on in here is are we living lives that are different enough for people to want to be like us yes Right? Yes. I love that. Like that, that's the interrupted part. Right. You know, I mean, we will talk about church and we'll figure church out and we'll keep, you know, messing with that and everything. But is your life actually a life that's like Christ that is different? Because most people won't take the time to visit that person in prison. And most people won't take the time to stop and offer someone a coat who doesn't have one or, you know, or build the relationship with the person and, and I, find oh. out what, what they see as the need and what, what they have to offer in return and, you know, what happens in those spaces in between. And I think it happens not because people are jerks, but just because it's really unknown and it's scary. So and the undervalued. fear comes up and then the I don't know how comes up. It's just like jumping into that brokenness, right? Right in an imperfect way. She she has a really funny and intelligent critique of the church as you're describing it, the attractional <laughs> model yeah. that I'm not going to read. You have to buy okay. the book to read that. <laughs> but it is hilarious and right on. And it's yep. you're sort of summing it up there. 
that she says early on in this book, if you took away the exterior sort of stated values, her life was exactly the same as any other middle-class white American. Right. And there was nothing different about how she was living other than... Maybe minus drinking and swearing. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like, (laughs) and and we act as if that is the mark of Christ. (laughs) The thing I, I wanted to make sure that I said about her book, this is where I first heard this quote by Richard Rohr was in her work. It's right in the middle of the book on page 80. This is the quote that I... I wrote down on a card, you know, and carried it around with me because it just spoke so deeply to me. And it's connected to what we're talking about. Richard Rohr says, there we learn that we can't, she's talking about being at the bottom, you know, climbing down the ladder. We learn that we can't use Jesus to defend and maintain our position of power and wealth or to keep up for our own sake a positive self-image as polite and decent. It could be that Jesus will lead us to a place where we ourselves don't even know whether we're holy, where all we know is that we have work to do, where we have to obey the word that we've heard in our heart. And I feel like that's such a beautiful, modern description of Jesus, that story that Jesus tells, where the people said, well, when did we see you? You know, like, I don't even know what you're talking about. And so many people, I think, are uncommon and do those things without the reward of being touted as fantastic Christians or anything like that. They just see the need. He weaves that uncertainty in there into holiness that we don't even know if we're right or wrong, but this is here. This is what love is calling me to. You know, There's freedom in that. Right. Write the check. Yeah. Go on the trip, but don't leave it there. Like, don't let that satisfy that desire that prompted you to do that in the first place because there's something more underneath that i love what she says about postmodern versus modern on page well it starts on page 164 where uh, she talks about a little bit she says naturally modernism shaped the church despite our efforts to remain above the influence of society our beliefs are so ingrained with the prevailing paradigm that we're unaware how entrenched we actually are so it reminds me a little bit of phyllis tickle mm-hmm. that the modernist mindset about facts and mm-hmm. absolute truth, apologetics, some of these things. But then she has a list of what marks postmoderns. You okay. know, as we're kind of in that transition and the church is responding. And and she wrote and this reminded me of you just with your upbringing in the church. Like most of my generation raised in church, I have a foot in both the modern and the postmodern worldviews. Um, and I thought I felt like that sort of describes a lot of the journey you've been on. Sure. So I just wanted to read some of the things that she has as typical of the postmodern okay. mindset. Relationships are of utmost importance. Postmoderns frequently seek God in community rather than alone. And discipleship occurs over years in community. Mm-hmm. Authenticity is everything. The appearance of being slick, packaged, or overproduced is suspect. That's also a deep New England value. Yeah. Thank you very much. (laughs) Postmoderns have been burned by positional authorities, government, parents, church leaders, so they are suspicious of establishment and must be won over by integrity, not title. They do, however, value genuine moral authority. Evangelism no longer emphasizes the rational, linear decision an individual makes at a specific point. It is a process, a journey, a story. Postmoderns are drawn to a church that guards against the effects of consumerism both on its members and itself. 
How genuinely a church engages relief work and the care of global society is everything to a postmodern. Hmm. I just thought there's a lot of hope there. Yes. In terms of the church can make the shift to be relevant, I think, to mm -hmm. the postmodern younger generation. Mm -hmm. So I well, guess in many ways that that is the story of Jesus, the, all those things, you know, and that is what we're supposed to be about. Right. Yeah. Can we create that container? That yeah. Do and that? she says, like, not only are these the values of the average postmodern, but they completely align with the gospel. There you go. Well, this is a really interesting conversation. I do feel like with this book, because it brings up so many things, we could talk about it forever. Absolutely. And we did a little bit. Church. Yeah, right. <laughs> the I purpose know. of church. But um, what we're going to do next, we're going to have a wrap-up conversation. Yes. Where we touch on the whole season of season one, which is mm -hmm. Finding Our Voice. Yep. We will touch on each of these books and our journey through them at this point in time. Right. And also look forward to what the next season is going to bring. Sounds good. So if you go to our website at giftgirls.blog, you will find reflection questions re around this conversation. And also you can listen to the recording of the Gospel of Matthew. And also you can check us out on Facebook and follow us there if that's more convenient. You can now subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. <laughs> that was hard for me. <laughs> it should be simple, but it was very challenging. You did it. Yeah. It's legit. Yeah. Do you want to close us in prayer? Sure. I was listening to an early Rob Bell podcast, and I loved... It's one that I go back to all the time, and we'll talk about that. He has a way of benedicting each podcast in the I beginning. I love that. He did yes, that. yes. Um, he's kind of gotten away from that now, so um, I think I'll just do that. Oh, like, good. A la Rob Bell. Okay. All right. So, may you, our friends, find the path that takes you out of your comfort zone and puts you in relationship. May you have the courage to get up every day and try that on and try that out and be willing to be wrong <laughs> and to look for your hand at work in that. May we, as a people, learn to take what you have admonished us to do to feed people to clothe people, to care for people who are sick, to visit people in prison, to do the simple, small things, seriously. They're all around us. May we see them. May you equip us to do that. And may it change our lives to be more like you. Amen. Amen.